Is God good all of the time? Welcome to Cutting It Straight with Pastor H.P. Charles Jr., author and pastor teacher at Shiloh Church in Jacksonville and Orange Park, Florida. In today's text out of James chapter 1, Pastor Charles will show us how the scriptures defend, declare, and demonstrate the goodness of God. Today's message, God is good all the time. And now, here's Pastor H.B. Charles Jr. James chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. Reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible, the reading is this. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. Amen. You may be seated. This is God's word. God is good all the time. In his book, Liberating Ministry from Success Syndrome, R. Kent Hughes and his wife Barbara write of a dark night of the soul and how the Lord brought them through it. Groomed for success. It was a surprise to no one when Kent was selected by his church to start or plant a new church. Expectations were so high that there were rumors about that it would not be long before the new church would outgrow the mother church under Kent's leadership. But as the years passed by in the beginning of this church, there were no signs of life or growth or fruit And one night at the kitchen table, Kent hit a low point and said to his wife, God has given me an assignment for which he has not equipped me to accomplish it. Therefore, he concluded, God is not good. His wife, Barbara, affirmed that she still believed in the goodness of God and encouraged him to hold on to her faith through that night. She told him, for tonight, I'll believe for the both of us. The rest of the book is how God used his own word to reorder their priorities and help them to understand success from God's perspective. But really, that low point is where I want to focus our attention. The question I want to place on the table today is, what do you hold on to when things happen in your life that cause you to question the goodness of God? And I want to commend to you that during those inevitable moments, you should hold on to James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due 
to change. The recipients of this letter from James were facing various trials. They needed wisdom to understand the purpose of their trials and to respond to them appropriately. God uses trials to test the genuineness of our faith and to nurture our faith to maturity. But failing to understand this, the recipients of this letter were failing the test of faith. Trials were becoming temptations to sin. Some even accused God of a divine conspiracy in which he used trials to set them up for sin. James chapter 1, verses 13 through 18, James addresses this matter of God and a case of mistaken identity. In James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, James explains that God is a holy God who never tempts anyone to sin. In our text, verses 16 through 18, James explains that God is also a good God who only gives good and perfect gifts. This is the message that I want to hang my hat on this afternoon. God is good all the time. William Tyndale wrote that the goodness of God is the root of all goodness and our goodness, if we have any, springs from his goodness. I repeat, God is good all the time. James chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, defends, declares, and demonstrates the goodness of God. First, consider the goodness of God defended in verse 16. Verse 16 is a warning. Do not be deceived, my Beloved brothers, this verse bridges what James says about the nature of temptation in verses 13 through 15 and what he says about the character of God in verses 17 and 18. The two concepts are closely connected. Listen to me. To miss understand God's ways is to indict God's character. So verse 16 warns, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. In this verse there is, first of all, a word of admonition, a word of warning, do not be deceived. Do not error. Do not stray away. The Greek verb here means to drift away or stray away from truth, virtue, or safety. It is the picture of one who is on a journey and takes the wrong course that leads away from the final destination. It is the picture of a sheep that wanders away from the shepherd and the fold and becomes lost. It is the picture of a ship that gets off course and becomes adrift at sea. Here, James uses the word to warn believers not to 
err, not to be deceived, not to stray away, not to be confused about God's ways or God's character or God's nature. Do not be deceived. In fact, the grammar of the text forbids something that is already taking place. Literally, James is saying, stop being deceived about God. Genesis chapter 3, verse 13. After Adam and Eve's fall into sin, the Lord says to the woman, what is this? that you have done? She answers, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Mark it down, church. The enemy of our souls still seeks to deceive us about who God is, what God chooses, and how God works. How desperately we need this warning just as much as the original recipients of the letter. Do not be deceived about who God is. In John 8, verse 31 and 32, Jesus says this, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. There is a then word of admonition in verse 16, but would you notice in verse 16 that this word of admonition is coupled with a word of affection. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. In verse 2 of James 1, James writes, count it all joy, my brothers. That term of address, brothers, is a gender-neutral term that refers to the recipients as brothers and sisters in Christ. It affirms that they are fellow Christians members of the family of God. But will you note now, though he is giving a warning, he fills out this title, calling them not merely my brothers, but my beloved brothers. Listen, church, I think the coupling of phrases here means you don't really love a person if you don't love them enough to tell them the truth when they need to hear it. Here, he loves them enough to tell them the truth. But he says it in a spirit of love. He says, you are my beloved brothers. He is affirming that these are true Christians, real Christians, genuine Christians. But even though you are a true Christian, if you're not careful, you can still be deceived about who God is. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called A Grief Observed. It may be one of his best books. It's not just a theologian at work. It's a theologian writing with a broken heart in the aftermath of the death of his wife. And there, Lewis writes, the thing I feared the most is not that I would stop believing God, but that I would begin to believe dreadful things about God. Not that I would say there is no God, but that I would begin to say, so that's what God is really like. And it can happen to you. 
Here, verse 16, defend the goodness of God by warning us. Don't be deceived about God by the way the circumstances of life may look. Do not look at your circumstances and become confused about God. God is good no matter how things may look. Verse 16 is the goodness of God defended. Verse 17 is the goodness of God declared. The goodness of God declared. Verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow do the change. This, this 17th verse declares three truths about God you can count on in any situation. Here's the first. It is the fundamental truth of the verse. God is good. If you have any good stuff going on in your life, where does it come from? James says, let me be clear. If there's anything good in your life, it does not come from below. It does not come from around. And it does not come from within. It comes from above. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. The word every is emphatic here. Everything that is good and perfect is from God. Anything that is not good and perfect is not from God. The word gift is used twice in the verse, but there are two different Greek words used in the verse for gift. They are used basically synonymously, but there is a nuance. The first term, every gift, refers to the of giving. The second term, perfect gift, refers to the nature of the gift. Get that. One term refers to the act of giving. The other is the nature of the gift. And he says, God is the source of both. God is good, first of all, in the very act of giving. F forget for a moment what he gives, the fact that he gives is proof of his goodness. His, his, the very process by which God gives is proof of his goodness. That, that feels like an obvious point, but it is still worthy of consideration. You do know that not every act of giving is necessarily good. Everyone who gives doesn't necessarily do so for the right reasons. Second Corinthians chapter 9 verse 7 says that some people give grudgingly, or of necessity rather than cheerfully. It happens at Christmas all the time. You can give a gift as an expression of love, or you can give a gift 
because you know they are going to get you a gift and will be offended if you don't give them something in return. Matthew chapter 7, verse 11, Jesus says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father in heaven give good things to those who ask of him? The very act of divine generosity is good, but not only that, the text also says that the nature of his gifts are good. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. This is the second verse in chapter 1 of James where we see the word perfect. Look at verse 4 where James says, And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The word there, perfect, refers to spiritual maturity, not moral perfection. It is a fully developed person who has moved from adolescence to adulthood. This is what the text means when God, when it says God gives perfect gift. May I say it this way? God gives perfecting gifts. God does not give gifts merely for your enjoyments. God gives gifts for your development, for your growth, for your maturity. Whatever he gives, it's never to tear you down. It's always to build you up. And as much as God gives perfecting gifts, it means there are many gifts God gives you will not want. Because there are many gifts God will give that are not comfortable, pleasurable, enjoyable. But he gives them anyway because they're good for you even when they're not good to you. (laughs) Romans chapter 8 verse 28 says, and we know. That for those who love God, all things work together for good. God is good. But not only does the text tell us God is good, it also tells us that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. We see in verse 17 the source of every good and perfect gift. It is from above. But then we see the process by which we receive good and perfect gifts. Look at the next part of the verse. Coming down from the Father of lights. We get gifts from above. Thank God they don't stay above. They come down. And the grammar here denotes continual, perpetual unending activity. Good gifts are coming down in a never-ending flow from God who constantly pours out good things to his children. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23 says it this way, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His compassions never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God is constantly pouring down good gifts to his children. But notice 
how God is referred to in verse 17. Instead of simply saying God, they, that the gifts come down from God, James says they come down from the Father of lights. <laughs> Father of lights is a typical Jewish circumlocution, a way of referring to God without directly mentioning his name. And yet, this reverent title for God teaches us much about him. It teaches us that God is not just good, God is sovereign. He's the father of lights. Uh, what lights? The sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, and the rest of the heavenly bodies. To say that he is the father of those lights is a poetic way of saying he created the lights. God made everything in the heavens. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Note, church, that when Scripture affirms God as creator, there is always, always an embedded theological assumption. And the assumption is this. The one who creates a thing is greater than the thing he creates and is in control over his creation. To call God the father of lights is to say that he made the lights. But to say that he made the lights is to say that he's in charge of the lights. And to say that he's in charge of the lights is to say that if he is in charge of the lights in heaven, can't he handle whatever you are going through on earth? God is the sovereign father of the lights. Read Joshua chapter 10. Joshua and the fighting men of Israel went out to fight the king of the Amorites. God was with them, and they prevailed, so the enemy began to retreat. And so they would not escape in the darkness. Joshua prayed and commanded that the sun stand still. God heard his prayer, and the sun stood still. I've, I've heard of a leap year. I've never heard of a leap day. But God gave a 25th hour, caused the sun to stand still until Joshua and the fighting men of Israel totally defeated their enemies. How in the world did that happen, HB? With all of my scholarly research, let me tell you, I have absolutely no idea. I don't know how it happened, but I know who did it, the father of the lights. That didn't get you? Read the story of King Hezekiah, who got a sick visitation from the prophet Isaiah. I know when you get sick, you want a pastor to show up, but you don't want it to be Isaiah. King Hezekiah was on his sick bed, and the prophet Isaiah showed up and said, Thus says the Lord. 
get your house in order, for you shall die and shall not live. God bless you, and Isaiah left. But while Isaiah was leaving, the Bible says Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and began to call on the Lord, and the Lord answered his prayer. And before Isaiah could make it off the property, God sent him back to Hezekiah to say, I have heard your prayer, and I'm adding 15 more years to your life. That ain't even the best part of the story. Because Isaiah also said, God will give you a sign that he's going to raise you up. He's going to give you a sign through Ahaz's sundial. Ahaz produced a sundial, which was just a primitive clock. It was like stairs. And when the shadow of the sun would fall on a different degree, they would know what time of day it was. Isaiah says, what sign do you want the Lord to give you? Do you want the sundial to move forward 10 degrees or backwards 10 degrees? Hezekiah said, well, it ain't no big deal if it goes forward because it was going forward anyway. But if the Lord wants to show a sign, let him move the sundial back 10 degrees and God made the sun go back 10 degrees. How did he do it? I don't know how he did it, but I know who did it. The father of the lights. And if he's in control of the lights, he can handle whatever is happening in your life. I got to move on. Let me ask you something. Have you any rivers that seem uncrossable? Have you any mountains that you can't tunnel through? I'm trying to tell you today that God specializes in things that men say are impossible. And he can do what no other power can do. God is good. God is sovereign. Thirdly, verse 17 declares, God is immutable. He does not change. The novelist Lloyd C. Douglas lived in a boarding house during his college years he developed a routine with a retired music teacher who also lived there. He would burst through the old man's door and say, what's the good news today? The old man would pull out his tuning fork and strike it against the side of his wheelchair and say, young man, the good news is that sound is middle C. It was middle C yesterday. It's middle C today. And a thousand years from now, it'll still be middle C. The tenor upstairs sings off key, and the piano down the hall is out of tune, but this young man is middle C. This 17th verse is trying to declare that God Almighty is the middle sea of the universe. Uh, Hebrews 13 verse 8 says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is immutable. He never changes. Listen to how verse 17 says that. It says the good and perfect gifts come down from above, from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation. Variation. The word variation just means to change, to morph, to alter. God created the heavenly lights, but unlike the heavenly lights God created, God 
never shifts. God never rotates. God never orbits. He always is what he always is. Malachi 3 verse 6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. Let me give it to you again. The only reason you are still here is because God does not change his mind about us when we change our minds about him. There is no variation with God. But notice verse 17 says, not only is there no variation, there is no shadow due to change. God created the lights, sun, moon, and stars. Unlike the lights he created, God never shifts or changes or rotates or orbits or morphs. But watch the additional idea. Nothing that does move, rotate, shift, or orbit can put a shadow on God's goodness. Let me say it again. Nothing in your life that changes can cast a shadow on the goodness of God. Here's, here's what I'm trying to tell you. Life is hard. But life is not God. God is God, and God is good, and the hardness of life can never cancel out the goodness of God. If you stand outside all day, the place of the shadow from the sun will move. But the sun doesn't move. The planet is orbiting around the sun. And the shadow around you changes not because the sun is moving, but because you are. So an old couple driving home had to stop lighter. Young couple pulls up next to them. She sees and begins to cry. Her husband's at the steering wheel. Ask her what the matter is. And she says, I'm just sad that we're not like that anymore. Do you remember? When we fell in love, and we used to ride like that, we would be so close that people couldn't tell which one of us was driving. <laughs> what happened? Her husband just kept driving and said, I don't know, but for the record, you moved, I didn't. <laughs> If God seems far away, guess who moved? One more verse. Verse 16 is the goodness of God defended. Verse 17 is the goodness of God declared. Verse 18 is the goodness of God demonstrated. The goodness of God demonstrated. A family bought a son a new bicycle for his birthday. It was everything a boy could ask for in the bike. And they couldn't wait to see his excitement when he received the gift. During his birthday party, they presented that gift. They opened up the box. They wheeled out the bicycle, 
To their shock, they watched the little boy play with the box instead of the bike. And it took them hours to get him to recognize that the bike was the gift, not the box. And how often do we miss God's best gifts playing around with outer wrappings? And so, in verse 18, James highlights and spotlights God's ultimate gift of his own will. He brought us forth by the word of truth that we might become a kind of first fruits of all his creation. I won't get to all of it, but note, note the verb. Brought us forth. It affirms the doctrine of regeneration. Regeneration is the sovereign and gracious way God gives new life to sinners through faith in the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. In fact, in John chapter 3, verses 6 through 8, Jesus says to a religious man, Nicodemus, who thought he could get to heaven by being religious, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it came from or where it is going. And so is everyone who is born of the Spirit of God. This is how God brings forth new life through Jesus Christ. He brought us forth. The same verb is used in verse 15. Same verb in verse 15 where James says, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Watch the tension. Sin brings forth death. Only God can bring forth life. Religion can't get you to God. You must be born again. What do you contribute to the new birth? Same thing you contributed to your first birth. Absolutely nothing. God did it all by the finished work of Jesus Christ. But not only that, notice, notice the phrase in the point of emphasis. Of his own will. That's the source of the new birth. Before before he talks about the process of it and the effects of it and the nature of the new birth, he first says the motivation of it. God brought us forth of his own will. It means we are saved by a deliberate and uninfluenced act of amazing grace of his own will. He brought us forth. He chose to do it. That's what Jesus said to the disciples in John 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. If you saved, that's how you got saved. I know when you give your testimony... You may get caught up and say, I was looking for hope and looking for direction and looking for the answer to the meaning of life. And one day I found the Lord. I, I, we know what you mean, but that's not theologically accurate. 
you did not find the Lord. The Lord wasn't lost, you were. You got saved because the Lord found you. God chose you. You did not choose him. In fact, it was his choice of you that enabled you to choose him. Being dead in trespasses and sins, you do not have the will, desire, or ability to choose God. But thanks be to God, amazing grace, for no reason we gave God, reached down and picked us up. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of the truth. I wish I had time to linger there. Because he's got to bring you forth, but it can't happen without the word of truth. That's why I can't go to no church if y'all just going to sing and shout and ain't no word of truth being declared. Because music can make me feel good, but God only brings new life by the word of the truth. He brought us forth by the word of truth so that we should become a kind of first fruits of his creation. During the harvest, God demanded, and I'm through here, God demanded the first fruits of the harvest. It was the first and the finest of the harvest. God was not honored, God is not honored when he blesses his people and then we give him a gift in return saying to him, this is all I got left. He gave you what you started with. And so God wants the first fruits. But will you notice here in verse 18? Hang in there one more minute. The text does not say in verse 18 that we give God the first fruits. It says we are. God has a harvest coming. And what's the proof that his harvest will come to pass? He has brought us forth of his own will by the word of truth. What is God's harvest? Model prayer tells us what God's harvest is. There's coming a day when his kingdom will come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You missed it, let me try again. There's coming a day when God is going to fix sin and sickness and suffering and death and poverty and racism and injustice and inequality and war and terrorism and climate change. You name it, he will fix it. What's the proof? He's given signs by making a first fruits. He brought you forth. He brought me forth. As a sign to the world that if I can change HB, it's nothing I can't fix. I got to let you alone. I don't know what you are dealing with in your life right now. I don't know what burden this season is to you. I wish I could tell you that if you just get to January 1, your breakthrough is coming. I, I don't know. I, I don't. I don't know. I don't know. The new year may come, and things may get worse. But I can tell you, God is good all the time. So maybe as you end the year, you should learn how to pray. Like this old lady in church who prayed the same thing all the time. Oh, Lord, 
Thank you, Jesus. Every week, you can hear her crying out in prayer in the service. Oh, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. When the kids saw her, they giggled because they had named her. Oh, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Finally, somebody asked, why is it that every week you crying out, oh, Lord, thank you, Jesus. She said, I'm just combining the two prayers I know to pray. She said, I lived in a bad neighborhood. And there are nights with bullets are flying. And I got to put my children on the floor for their safety. And all I know to cry out is, oh, Lord. But then we wake up in the morning, safe from all danger. And then I say, thank you, Jesus. And when we get up in the morning, I get my children dressed for school. And I put them at that bus stop. And I don't know what's going to happen to my children after they get on that bus. And all I know how to say is, oh, Lord. But at 3 o'clock, when my kids get off the bus, and I see that they made it home safe, my soul cries out, thank you, Jesus. And when I come to church, I just put my two prayers together. Oh, Lord, thank you, Jesus. Oh, Lord, thank you, Jesus. Oh, Lord, thank you, Jesus. I thank God for my mountains. I thank God for my valleys. And I thank God for the storms he brought me through. Because if I never had a problem, hey, I wouldn't know that God could solve them. And I wouldn't know what faith in God can do. But I bet I ain't by myself when I testify through it all. Hey, I've, I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to trust in God. Through it all. Through it all. Through it all. Through it all. I've learned to depend upon his word. God be praised. God be praised for his word. I'm through. Thanks for listening to Cutting It Straight with Pastor H.B. Charles Jr., If you would like more resources from Pastor Charles or to support this ministry, he can be reached online at www.hbcharlesjr.com. That's hbcharlesjr.com. Join us again for Cutting It Straight, and God bless.